I know that what I'm about to say is going to sound very anti-America or un-American, um, especially on 4th of July, but I think fireworks are overrated. Anybody with me on that or no? Well, nobody. Okay. All right. Here's why I think, I don't, it's not that I dislike fireworks. Let me just be clear. I don't dislike fireworks. They're fine. They're way too long. No matter how long they are, they're too long for me. For me, if you just lit every single firework off and it lasted five minutes, I'd be all about it, okay? But yesterday, I went to the Canesville Fireworks where it rained, and it was like 40 minutes of fireworks. I was like, come on, let's get this moving. We're getting rained on. My wife was under a blanket. She wasn't even looking at the fireworks. She was like, I want to go to bed. It's, I think they're overrated. And they're different. I know there are different types of fireworks. Some people like the loud boom ones. Some people like the falling leaves ones, the whistle ones, the glitter ones, the ones that like cross. I know I'm missing the fireworks, the ones that make random shapes. But to me, light them all off at one time, and I'd be fine with that. Throughout this series, we're doing, we're doing something called fireworks, and what we're talking about throughout this series is we are talking about some of the fireworks that we find in the Bible, and here's what we mean by that. Um, we're going to be looking at some of the harder, more controversial things that the Bible says on how we should live. Um, that's what we look at throughout this entire series. A lot of this stuff, if you've been at church before or you've been in church culture, you know it, but a lot of us don't live it out. So we're going to talk about some of those harder things to live out. And today, the thing we're going to talk about, um, I bet a lot of us know this, um, but I would argue barely any of us do it, and that's including me. I say us, that a lot of us struggle to do this even though we all know it. See, most of us believe this lie, um, and it call, it's from the culture of self is what I call it. The culture of self says this, Everything is about me. That's the culture of self. That a lot of us live with this idea, even if we don't verbalize it, even if we don't truly know it, that it's actually all about me. It's all about me. And we get this from, from very young. I mean, as an infant, you, you have kids, if you're, you, you know this. As an infant from day one, it's all about us. It's the only thing we know is us. If we're hungry, we cry. If we're poopy, we cry. If we don't want to sleep, we cry. If we're too tired, we cry. Like, we just want what we want. That's all we know. We don't know anything different. We don't know any other way to be besides, I want something, someone needs to give it to me. That's what we do. And then we get a little older, we become a toddler, and it doesn't get any better. I know for me, sharing was very hard. I don't like sharing. I have a brother who's younger than me. I don't like sharing. I don't like taking turns. I don't like playing nice. I definitely didn't like doing his idea. I want to do my idea. And the reason why is because his idea was stupid, and I want to do my idea. We have, we have home videos. There's one home video that I can think of that um, they're taking a video of my sister, um, and then all of a sudden they hear Shane crying, which he did a lot and still does a lot. And he was coming up the steps, and he turned, and he's just crying. And like, what's wrong? I was like, Eric, punch me in the stomach. And I don't know why, but he deserved it. That's all I know. I don't know why he did. But as toddlers, if you have a toddler, if you remember being a toddler, it's all about you. It's what you want. You don't want to share. You don't want to take turns. You don't want to play nice. You want what you want. Then we become teenagers. Doesn't get any better when we're teenagers, does it? We never complain that we aren't getting what everybody else is getting as teenagers. We never complain of the freedoms that we felt like we deserved as teenagers. We never made it about our happiness, about our pleasure, about our acceptance at whatever cost it was. We never did that as teenagers. And then we go to college. 
College is where we discover who we are, right? That's who we really figure out, the person that we are and who we're supposed to be. So in order to do that, I have to get what I feel like I deserve in order to figure out who I actually am. I need to live out all the experiences I can so I can understand who I am. I need to stretch my boundaries so I can figure out who I am meant to me, meant to be. And then we become an adult, and we all grow out of it as an adult. None of us make it about ourselves when we become adults, right? We don't ever get mad at our spouse or our kids because we weren't treated the way that we felt like we deserved to be treated. We don't do that as adults. We're growing past that. We don't ever save all of our money and never give any of it away. We don't do that. Not as adults. We understand better. We know better. We don't ever skip out on things that we know we should do in order to do things that we want to do or the things that we think we deserve to do. We would never do that as an adult. This culture of self, it's everywhere. It's in all of us. It's around us everywhere. And unless you do something to work against the culture of self, which says everything is about me, unless you are intentional about working against it, unless you do that, you're going to be part of it. All of us do it because it's natural for us to make it about ourselves. I mean, look at the world we live in. Let's just look at social media, for example. You know what social media has done? It has made us think that we understand how everything works and that we need to give our opinion on how everything works. That's what happens. All of a sudden, we all think we're experts in every area, you name it, religion, politics, habits, we're an expert on all of it, and you need to know what I know about this, because I'm an expert on it. In fact, Michael Lynch, he has a great quote that I found this week. Um, He's a, a, a philosophy professor, and he's the author of the book, The Internet and Us, and here's what he said, it'll be on the screen as well. One way the internet distorts our pictures of ourselves is by feeding the human tendency to overestimate our knowledge of how the world works. The internet of us becomes one big reinforcement mechanism, getting us all the information we already are biased to believe and encouraging us to regard those in other bubbles as misinformed miscreants. We know it all. The internet tells us so. The internet feeds us what we want, ourself. We want to be right. We want to be the experts. It feeds us more of ourself. It gives us only the information we want. It keeps out all the information that we don't want to make us think about us, our opinions, our agenda, our thoughts. We are always right. We need everyone to know that we are always right. So we post about it in a way that makes us look better and makes our family look better and make sure we have the right, right pictures. That's what social media has done. It's made it all about us. All it's done is fed our need for self, the culture of self. That's not the only place we see it. We also just see it around in the world. You've seen it in the world. The world is constantly pushing the culture of self. The reason why is because we all like it. We all want that. You need to do whatever makes you happy. You need to be whatever makes you happy. Your happiness is the number one priority. Do whatever it takes to be happy. If you lack something and it isn't making you happy, then just go get it. If your marriage isn't making you happy, then just leave it. If your job isn't making you happy, leave it. It doesn't matter if you have a job lined up, just leave it because it's all about your happiness. No one can tell you what to do. No one can tell you what to be. No one can tell you what is allowed or isn't allowed because it's all about us. But before we gang up too much on the world, which we'd like to do, the church has been no better with this. The church has been built to feed us. See, sometime recently, pastors and churches discovered something. People like hearing about themselves. And when you talk a lot about people, 
then all of a sudden other people will come and people will be attracted to that. So pastors and church leaders, they started to find out that this message of self-love attracted people. The people wanted to hear that. And I, I believe it didn't start with bad intentions. I believe there were people that struggled with loving themselves, so it was a way to like remind them of who they are in God. Because you see, somewhere a long time ago, back, and it's not a long time ago for some churches, but back somewhere along the way, church became about behavior management. It came about looking the part. You just need to be a good boy, you need to be a good girl. If you have, your moral behavior would, was rewarded and your negative behavior was punished. So to, to counter that, churches started to preach about self-love. So we started to turn and say, you just need to receive that love and acceptance. We started accepting ourselves exactly as we are, and others now have to accept it too. We decide to put ourselves first, then we can help other people. I've even heard the sermons. I've heard sermons from major big pastors that talk about um, the, the grace commandment. They ask Jesus, what's the grace commandment? He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your, love your neighbor as yourself. And I've heard sermons say, you can't do that unless you love yourself. So the first thing you need to do is focusing on loving yourself. Now, before I get too far on this, we should love ourselves. We should understand that we have value and dignity because we are made in God's image. But look at the order that Jesus gave it to us. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. Third. But I've heard sermons, you've got to start. You cannot serve anyone until you start loving yourself. You cannot love others until you love yourself. And that's not what Jesus preached. And we take that mentality, and that mentality, the gospel of self is what I call it, the gospel of self-love, and we take that mentality when we go looking for churches, don't we? You know, I, I rarely hear when someone's looking for a new church home, here's a question I don't hear a lot. Sometimes I do, but here's a question I don't hear a lot. Is God calling me to go to this church? Like, is this where God wants me to be? Here's, the, here's what I hear most of the time. Does this church perform in my preference? Do I like the worship? Do I like the music? Do I like the pastor? Do I like the way he preaches? Do I like the kids area? Because my kids need a really good kids area. I mean, I'm not going to serve in it, but I need a good kids area up there. That's what I hear. That's the kind of stuff that we hear all the time. We constantly are making it about ourselves. And then I'll do one more thing before I get off my tangent here. What is the most popular verse um, in our culture in, in the Bible? What would you think? Throw it up. John 3.16, right? Most of us know that verse. Most people, whether you're a church person or not, know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's definitely the most popular verse. Have you ever asked why? Have you? Because Jesus said this verse one time to one guy, Nicodemus. He didn't do it in a sermon. He didn't do it to all his disciples. He said it to one guy, and it got recorded that way. See, that, that verse summarized what we believe, but um, I'm not sure why it's the number one most popular verse of all time. We love John 3.16 because it's all about God saving us, and we don't have to do anything. God loved us, so he sent his son so we can have everlasting life. We, I love John 3.16. It's a great summarization of our belief. But there's verses that Jesus talked about a lot more that we hate. An example of that is Luke chapter 9, verse 23. So let me give you some background before I tell you this verse that Jesus said here, he said in other Gospels, and it's constantly throughout the New Testament, this idea uh, that we find in Luke 9, 23. Jesus with his disciples, and he asks all of them, hey, what, are, what is everyone saying about me? Who do they say I am? And some of the disciples chime in, well, some people think you're John the Baptist, some people think you're Elijah, reincarnated. Um, and Jesus says, okay, well, who do you say I am? And the disciples get a little quiet, 
And then Peter, bold Peter, steps up and he goes, um, now I, I think you're the son of God. You're the son of man. You're the Messiah we've been waiting for. Jesus says, that's right. That is who I am. And then he goes on to say, you're right. And here's what that means, me being the son of God. The son of God is going to suffer, like a lot. He's really going to suffer. And the son of God is going to be rejected by everybody. Then the son of God is going to be killed, only to be come back three days later. And then he goes from talking to Peter to telling everybody this message, and we see this message constantly throughout the New Testament. Here's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. This isn't a culture of self. Jesus never preached a gospel of self. In fact, Jesus preached the opposite. He preached a gospel of self-denial. The gospel isn't self-love. It's self-denial. Jesus says, hey, you want to follow me? Here's where I'm going. I'm picking up this cross. I'm going to die on that hill. If you want to follow me, you have to do the same thing. Deny yourself and every day pick up that cross and follow me. Back then, the audience they were talking to, they would have understood what this means. No one picked up a cross and survived it. You were going to be crucified, you picked up a cross until you died. No one survived crucifixion. So death was going to happen. He says, if you want to follow me, it's going to take death. Without death, there is no resurrection. If you want to be new, it starts with the cross. It starts with dying to ourselves so that we can live in him. It starts with self-denial. The gospel isn't self-love, it's self-denial. And I can give you example after example that we see in the New Testament of this idea of denying yourself coming through. Romans 12 talks about giving up your right to revenge. Luke 9 talks about giving up our right to comfort. Matthew 5 talks about giving up our right for a good reputation. Matthew 6 talks about giving up our right to spend our money however we please. Matthew 5.43 talks about giving up our right to hate our enemy. Uh, Hebrews 11.8 talks about, catch this one, talks about our right, uh, giving up our right to understand God's plan before we obey it. That's what Hebrews talks about. John 14.23 talks about giving up our right to live by our own rules. Colossians 3.13 talks about giving up our right to hold grudges. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, you're, gonna not, you're not going to like this one, talks about giving up our right to complain. And I could keep going. It's constantly, this idea of self-denial is constantly throughout the New Testament. It's constantly being preached. The gospel isn't self-love, it's self-denial. Um, I don't know if you know this, you probably do if you've read anything about this, but Christianity is on the decline in America. Um, I, I, I would argue it's not declining as much as we think it is. I think it's just people proclaiming, because church attendance is actually basically the same as it's always been. Um, in the 70s, like 32% went consistently, and now it's like 31%. So it's, it really hasn't changed attendance-wise. It's just people proclaiming or labeling themselves as a Christian, and less people are doing that. Um, it's declining. In fact, the Pew Research says, um, they did this in 2019, so it's a little old, but 65% of adults dis still describe themselves um, as Christians uh, in 2019, 65%. Um, but a decade later, it was, or a decade prior, it was 77%. So that's a pretty big decrease. It's 12% in just 10 years. Um, but what's weird is Christianity isn't on the decline everywhere. In fact, there's places that it's not. There's places that more and more people are becoming Christians. And, and the, the craziest case of this is in China. Um, China is seeing more and more people turn to Christianity. A decade ago, 22 million people called themselves Christians in China. Um, today, that number is 38 million confessed to be Christian in China. Here's why that's so crazy to me. Um, it's illegal. 
You're not allowed to be a Christian there. What China does, they are constantly tearing down crosses. Uh, They are stopping any house churches that form. You're not allowed to do that. Uh, They will put people in prison. They will do all this persecution, yet in China, Christianity is increasing. Why is that? Throughout intense persecution, the gospel of Jesus is thriving, while here, with no persecution, with all the freedom that we are going to celebrate this weekend, the freedom that we have, which is amazing that we have, Christianity is declining. Maybe because if you're in China, you can't follow God without denying yourself because there's literal persecution. Like, you could literally be thrown in prison. We're here. You don't have to do that. Maybe because we are practicing the gospel of self-love while they're practicing the gospel that Jesus taught of self-denial. The Christians in China understand something that I think we, and I'm saying we and me as well, have trouble understanding at times. Jesus is not just our Savior. He is also our Lord. That's a big distinction. He's not just your Savior. He's also your Lord. This is where we get it wrong. We love the Savior part. John 3, 16, he came and he saved me. I now have hope. I can now go to heaven. I love that. I I am saved. Don't ask me to do anything. Don't ask me to change my opinions on anything. Don't ask me to change any habits. Don't ask me to have an unpopular opinion because Jesus is my Savior. He's not just your Savior. He says, I'm your Savior and I'm your Lord. That means that we serve him. He is our number one priority, not us. We obey him. We follow him no matter what it means. If it means denying our own needs, we do it because he is our Lord. Not just our Savior, but our Lord. We deny ourselves, our wants, and our desires to lift him up. Another way we can say this, and another way that's talked about in the Bible, is we are a slave to him. Uh, in, the, in the Gospels, every time an author writes a letter, he w- they would say who they are and who they were in Christ. And most of the time, they would say, I am a slave to Christ. Romans 1, Paul described himself as a slave or a servant to Christ. Philippians 1, Timothy describes himself as a slave or servant to Christ. James 1, James describes himself as a slave or servant. 2 Peter 1, Peter says, I am a slave or servant to Christ. And think about Peter. Peter could have had a lot of labels. He said, I am Peter, the rock. So I hope you smell what the rock is cooking when as I talked about the rest of the stuff. He could have said that. He could have said, I am Peter, the one who walked on water. That's who I am. I am Peter, the one who gave a sermon and 3,000 people gave their life to Jesus. If that happened today, if a pastor did that, they would take that pastor and pass him around all the conferences so he could talk to all the other church planners and church people about how to do that. No, Peter doesn't describe himself that way. He says, I am Peter, a slave and a servant to Christ. He is my Lord. I follow him and I obey him. Another word that is very interchangeable with, with slave is a bondservant, which is what Peter and Paul refer to themselves as. And let me explain to you what a bondservant is. In the Old Testament in the first century, uh, if you owed a debt that you could not pay, uh, they would take you to prison. Uh, you would be there because you had this big debt that you just weren't able to pay off. Um, so what would happen is they would be in prison, and then a wealthy person would come and say, hey, I'm going to pay that debt off for them, a debt that those people in prison could absolutely never pay. I'm going to pay that debt for them, and I am going to take them, and they will be my bondservant. People would get out of jail, and it was legal. It was legally working for them as a bondservant. They were not free until they paid off the debt through working with their master. That's what would happen. And many times, the bondservant, who was in prison before the master came and, and paid their debt and got them out. Many times that bond servant would say, you know what? I already paid my debt. I'm just going to stay here because 
Um, I like how it's going here. I, without you, I'd still be in prison. I'm just going to stay here because without you, you paid a debt that I could never pay. So I'm just going to follow you and serve you the rest of my life because what else can I do? That is how Peter and Paul describe themselves, as bond servants. That's how they serve Christ. We are so indebted to him that if it wasn't for him, we would be in our own prison with no hope. But he sets us free. So because of that, I will live the rest of my life indebted to him and serving him because he paid a debt that I could never pay. That's how they describe themselves as. And I know when I say um, we should be a slave to Christ, we don't like that. Um, not only because in, in, our, in America we have a bad context of that, understandably, because of our history, but we just don't like the idea of being a slave. It's like, I'm not being a slave to anything. And I would argue, you already are. The question is, what are you a slave to? See, the things we do show what we truly desire and, what we tr- and who we truly serve. So are you a slave to money? Are you a slave to pleasure? Are you a slave to happiness? Are you a slave to self? And this isn't being a slave about religion. This isn't being a slave to rules. This isn't being a slave to obedience. That's where we get this wrong. We focus all of our energy on behavior, making sure that we're all the good Christians that we think we need to be. That's still being a slave to self. We're just masking it with religion. That's all we're doing. We are called to be a slave, a slave to love. That's what we're called to do. We love Christ because of who he is. We love Christ because of what he has done. Listen, some of us need to stop focusing on having the right opinions, stop focusing on knowing, on knowing what a sin is and what a sin isn't, on putting others, on putting it out with everyone else, on focusing on being the good Christian that we're supposed to be. And we just need to focus on love, on loving Christ with our entire heart. Being a slave to loving your heavenly Father. You can only do that if you understand what he has done for you. You can only do that if you understand what he is doing for you. And that takes humility. That's what it takes. It takes pushing your pride aside, being humble. It takes self-denial. It takes repentance. You cannot love God and still love yourself. You just can't do it. You can't love other people but make it about you because that's loving them with an agenda and it's still about you. You can't love God and make it about you. That's loving him with an agenda. It's still about you. It takes self-denial. You cannot love God and love others without denying yourself. We can't do that. That takes humility. It takes self-denial. It takes repentance. It takes picking up our cross, like Jesus said, every day and following him. Here's what it looks like. I have a little um, thing you can, you can draw on your notes if you want. I'm going to call it the cycle of loving for Christ. Here's what it looks like. We, you can put it the next slide there, Rob. The cycle of loving Christ. There you go. Jesus in the middle. We start with striving to love, that we want to strive to love other people. Eventually, we know we're going to fall short when we try to love God or love other people. We fall short. We mess up because we're not perfect. So when we do that, we repent. We say, I'm sorry. I'm going to turn away from what I did wrong. When we repent, we understand God's grace. We understand that God has given us grace. And after we understand that grace, then we go, you know what? I want to love him more. And that every time we do that, we go from striving to love, falling short, repenting, understanding God's grace more. Strive to love. I'm going to love God with all I can. I'm going to love other people without an agenda. And then you mess it up. So you say, God, I repent from what I've done wrong, and I want to go closer to you. And you understand God's grace. Every time you do that, you get a little closer to looking like Jesus. 
That's what it looks like. That's what picking up your cross daily, following him, looks like. Living out that cycle of following him. That I'm going to do everything I can to love God and to love other people. And when I fall short because I am not perfect, I'm going to repent and say, God, forgive me what I've done wrong. And when I do that, I understand the grace that God has given me, the grace that God has shown us. And because of that, I'm going to love him again. And every time we do that cycle, every time we do that, we look a little more like Jesus. So I'm going to close, and I'm going to be as blunt as I possibly can with some of you. Because um, some of you need to hear it. And while I, did, while I was thinking about this, I thought of myself. So I'm being blunt with you because I was blunt with myself this week. But as I was talking, um, and as I was talking about self-love and the, and the gospel of self-love and how we just need to accept ourselves the way we are and that we make church about us and all those things I said at the beginning. When I talked about that stuff, who did you think of? Did you think of a family member? Did you think of a friend? Did you think of a parent? Or did you think about yourself? Because here's what we like to do. We like to hear these messages and go, yeah, they should hear this. We take a sermon on self-denial and make it about ourselves. And we miss ourselves in a sermon on self-denial. We do it all the time. You go, ah, oh, man, I, I wish this person was here to hear this. They're not. You're here. You're here. See, it all goes back to love. We love God first because we are a servant, a slave, a bondservant to him. He is our, not only our Savior, but He is our Lord. He paid a debt we could never pay. He gives us a hope that we could never have anywhere else. So we follow Him with everything we do. We love God first. And because we love God, God says, you can't love me and not love everybody else. So you need to show that love that you have for me by loving everybody else. We say, I'm going to love everyone else. I'm going to love as God commands me. We cannot love God and we cannot love others without first denying ourselves, picking up our cross, and following Him. The question I want to ask you, how do you deny yourself? Let's get real practical for a second. How do you deny yourself? Who are the people that you refuse to forgive in your life? When that happens, you refuse to deny yourself. Who are those people? Right when I said that, someone came to your mind. Who is it? That's you not denying yourself. Who are those people? Who are those people that you're still holding that grudge with? You need to deny yourself. Who are those people that you think the reason why we're fighting, the reason why we're not friends anymore is all because of them, and we never take any self-responsibility of anything ever going wrong. It's 100% on them. Yeah, it might be 90%, but you can do something about your 10. If we're not willing to do that, we're not willing to deny ourselves. So who are those people in your life need to do that with? What are the habits that you know you should not do, that you refuse to give up? I'm not going to tell you the habits. You probably already know the habits. Maybe it's something you're eating. Maybe it's something you're watching. Maybe it's something you're listening to. Maybe it's something you're drinking. Maybe it's something that you're putting in your body. I don't know what it is. But that habit that you know that you wish you shouldn't do, but you cannot give it up because you will not deny self. Who is it? Let me talk to the married couples in a second, for a second. Let me talk to some of the wives. How are you denying yourself? How are you denying yourself for your husband? How are you supporting him and giving him grace and giving him love? How are you doing that in your marriage? If your marriage is struggling, what are you doing to make it better? Now, husbands, you're not off the hook at all. Here's something that I'm really tired of seeing. 
I'm really tired of seeing wives bring their families to church. Be the leader you are called to be. Be the leader God called you to be. Deny yourself. I get it. You don't want to come. I get it. You are teaching your kids to not come to church too. I'm sick and seeing it. I see it all the time. I see it constantly. It's a trend. It's a trend that happens. I'm tired of seeing that. How are you denying yourself? How are you denying yourself with your kids? Because I see parents that have kids but still want it all about them. How do you deny yourself with them? Do you put their needs in front of yours or it's still all about you? How do you deny yourself? Stop trying to do self-improvement and start doing self-denial. That's why we encourage you to do things like read your Bible. I don't know if you saw on your, on your um, chair, but we have our new Bible reading plan. We've been doing this. This is, I think, our third one this year. You can grab one of these. We have hole punches. So you can grab a binder in the back so you can keep it. That's the reason why we encourage you to read your Bible consistently. It's a reason why we encourage you to pray consistently. It's a reason why we encourage you to serve consistently. It's a reason why we encourage you to come to church consistently. Not because you are a slave to behaviors. Not because you are a slave to obedience. But because you love what you spend time with. Some of us don't love God because we never spend time with him. I'm not doing this. I'll come to church once a month. I'm not going to serve. I'm not praying anytime. If you don't spend time, you will not love. The more time you spend, the more you love. And the more you love God, the more you love others, the more you will love yourself. Here's what Jesus said in Luke 9, verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves Take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Let's pray. Dear God, we we lift your name up. We praise you, the, the, the God that saves us, the God that gives us a hope, the God that pays a debt that we can never pay. Dear God, we don't want to be people that just follow you so that you can save us. We want to follow you as our Lord. Dear God, I pray for the people that are in this room. I pray that there are people that are convicted about what they need to do next about the steps that they need to take, about the changes that they need to start doing. And we don't do those changes, we don't do those steps to earn your favor. We do it because you love us. We have no other option but to serve you. So dear God, I pray that you build the support around people, give them the courage to take whatever that step is, you give them the confidence to to do what they need to do so that we can show that you are not just our Savior, you are also our Lord. That we love you. That without you, we don't have hope. Without you, we could never pay our debt. And because you freed us from the trap of sin, help us to love you and to love others without an agenda, to take ourself and deny it so that we can love you more. God, I pray for less of us 
and more of you. In your son's name, amen. I want to encourage you. I want to uh, close today with singing this worship song, which I think is a, is a perfect song to close with. So I want to encourage you to stand and sing this song with us.